Well, to give just a simple context for this series and where we're going, uh, I want you to know if you haven't been around, we've done this now two years in a row where in the spring we've asked you, hey, what are topics you want us to teach on? And you've responded and said, these are the issues we're facing today. And so this first series, we're going to cover four of the topics you listed very high. Significantly, in your responses, we're actually going to do another series out of this on the Holy Spirit. That was another area you wanted to know about. We're going to do six weeks just looking beautifully at that. We can't wait. And then there'll be different topics we hit throughout other series in the year, but we want to pay attention to what you're dealing with. And so I want to tell you today, as we begin this, one of the top things you responded with is we live in this pressurized world with lots of anger and hate. What does it look like for us to deal with that in conflict in the world we're in? Next week, we're going to look at the area of forgiveness and what it looks like to have to forgive over and over and over again. You know, when someone passes the place, we're like, oh my goodness, do I have to keep doing this? We're going to look at what that means. And then the third week, we're going to look at this area of anxiety, which has been your top answer the last two years, by the way reminds us just how much we're all dealing with this pressurized world. And then the fourth week, the final week, we'll be looking at mental health overall. It was another area you talked about. And we know that one out of two people in their lifetime will deal with mental illness and one out of five at any time. So we know it's dramatic. And we also know with the pressurized world we're living in, it's even more significant. True? Very true. So as we begin today, we're going to look, <laughs> it sounds so funny, we're going to look at anger and hate. Hope you have a good time today. <laughs> I'm pumped today, and I hate all of you right now. <clears throat> I want you just to consider with me how different our world is than it was 10 and 15 years ago. And not just the facet that we know. We know that volatility and anger and hate have elevated, but what's changed in our life that's actually enhanced it or made it much more uh, enticing and maybe even fed it? And so I want to take you back for a minute. Now, if you're 30 or older, you'll know a time before this. As you get younger, the much your awareness of life before some of these things will be less. And particularly if you get to 20 or less, you might even go, I didn't know there was ever something other than this. For example, if you're 20 or younger, you probably never have seen a phone with a cable on it or even had a house phone. You probably didn't realize that there was first, even before we had email, we had to send letters. And before that, we had dial, or after that, we had dial-up. You remember that? All oh, that stupid internet. And then we move into 2004, guess what? Facebook began. Now, it might not have hit our area to about 2010 or 11 because it started with colleges, but we know that had a dramatic shift on life. Go beyond that, we're in 2006, Twitter is added. Go a little beyond that to 2007, the first iPhone comes, and oh my goodness, what a great thing. Now I can look what everybody's thinking, and everybody thinks about everything every moment of every day, all the time. Thank you, you're welcome. And we move on, and we realize we have a whole new culture that is constantly connected, and we have a whole new culture that everybody knows, hey, I can share anything at any time in any way, and it's always good, and you deal with it and live with it, because I need to. Amen? It's how we live. In fact, even as we look at all of this, we realize, boy, there's a question we have to ask, because this has created such a culture of anger and hostility, and it's just that we're dealing with all this. Now, I want you to see these things because in case you don't know, if you're younger than 30, especially younger than 20, you probably think this has always been here. We've always had unfollow, unfriend, and block. That was never a vocabulary in our lives before this. So if someone does something you know is wrong and you're mad, what do we do? I'm gonna unfollow them. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna see what you're saying that you don't even know if I saw anyway. Oh, and guess what? 
I've known you periodically through someone else, but you are no longer my friend. I'm going to unfriend you. And if you really cross the line that you should never cross, I'm going to block you. Good luck finding me online. You're done. Can we agree that's the climate we're a part of? Those are words we've never had in our vernacular, our vocabulary, that are common to us. I mean, I thought blocking was something we only did in football. And oh my goodness, it's the way we live now. And make no mistake, while I'm beginning by talking about these areas of social media and these areas of our new life and our constant information gaining, let's make no mistake that we've had much more rising conflict in every relationship, haven't we? Wouldn't we say this is true? And in the midst of pressure, it's gotten worse. So if we begin even with some of those core pieces like a marriage or even just people that are close and partners or somehow deeply in connection, we're living in new levels of anger and rage, aren't we? I mean, I hear it from you all the time. We hear it from each other. We know it on a larger level from our mental health leaders, from different sources and places going. We are breaking down relationships. We live in an age of anger and hate. And don't get me started on parenting with young children. When you're under pressure, guess what? Your kids are much more annoying, aren't they? And don't they do things they should know better than? I mean, think of how angry and how hard it is to manage your anger and frustration when you haven't slept in three weeks. And guess what? We're together every minute of every day now. I don't even get a break from you. We understand it's hard. And boy, if you think it gets easier, it doesn't. Think of our kids as they grow older and all of a sudden they're having conflict in their relationships. And that enters your home, or you're a student and you're with us and you're dealing with this. And now your conflicts aren't just when you're alone, they're 24 seven because you post and direct message and text and do all sorts of things about them. Is this not getting worse? You bet it is. Oh, and then let's move to the joys of parenting when you have teenagers. Oh, my teenagers were so reasonable with me. It was unbelievable. Father, we're so appreciative of what you do for us. And I, I think I'm being kind of too much and over the top right now. What else can I do to make this a little better? Never happened. What did happen was my teenagers became aware of my shortcomings and had no problem telling me that. And they were right, but I don't care if they're right because I'm their father and I helped put them on this world. And guess what? Everything they have is under our roof. I wish they would just thank you and move on. I don't care if I'm a bad person. Leave me alone. Can that not get worse in our day and age? And those are close relationships. They continue on beyond that. What if you have extended family like stepbrothers? Oh my goodness. You know what that's like? I'm glad some of you had seen this movie. Last service, they were like dead. I'm going, oh my goodness, you are so holy. You've never seen this movie. How about neighbors? Have your neighbors become more annoying under pressure? I hope you don't live near, you're not here together, but... Let's be honest, we're looking across the way, getting more frustrated with each other. And don't even get me started on parents and sports. I'm sorry, but all of you left your Christian thing in the doorway when you enter an avenue of a marina. It is just sad, isn't it? Like, I know them. I've never seen this side of them. What happened? I don't know if they thought their kid is like the new, I'm not even going to say what, but all of a sudden they're angry if nothing goes well and they're just difficult to deal with. It's never me, of course, it's someone else. And then we have work environments, which we haven't even gotten started with, and the increased tension we're seeing in work, life and pain go down and stress go up. And I haven't even hit the one that we all know is the most toxic, right? Oh my goodness. 
Good luck having a political difference today. I mean, either side, if you don't agree, the other side is satanic and you're definitely angelic. Whatever goes on, it's gonna be horrible. And the way we live in conflict is like this. Oh my goodness, let's pummel each other to death in the name of Jesus. I'm not laughing. I'm gonna pummel a few of you afterwards. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Let's be honest, and this is what we're trying to do today. How can you and I navigate conflict in a culture of anger and hate? How are we going to do it? And let me just say this before we get started. What, what occurred to me as I was preparing for this and praying and just contemplating our culture, do you know that we have an amazing amount of anger stations to plug into and recalibrate and refuel our anger? Have you realized this? Like, there are anger stations everywhere you go. If you're suddenly feeling more peaceful, don't worry. We've got a place for you to retool and get torqued off again. We'll plug right back in. We'll plug into our news source. We'll plug into our podcast. We'll plug into social media. And if you don't know, you probably even know who to plug into and look at so you can get mad again. And that's not even your relationships in reality. Once you enter those under stress, we are plugging in again and again And again, to make sure that anger level never goes too far down. Can we just agree we're in trouble? Can we just agree it's going to take more than a nice thought and a one-off message to say, oh, here, here's what you do, it's all better. But can we also agree that God might want to do something in this, that if we just take a move... Maybe it will begin to take a few more moves and maybe it'll change a few more areas around us and maybe we could bring something different than the anger stations that are everywhere. And by the way, they're not just prominent where we are. We're in good West Michigan, so we're very kind to each other face to face. We'll just direct message someone about someone else and build the hostility in private one-off stations too, don't we? A text message here, a comment there. My favorite is when we say, hey, I'm praying about vomit some anger. Can we just agree that this is hard and there's not an easy answer? And where I want to go today, and I I have, you know, you always, when when you're speaking, when you're preaching, you're always knowing, listen, God has to move. That's true every week. But I have never felt more true than today. Like, oh my goodness, I think there's some great things to tell you, but unless God meets us, we're just going to keep plugging into anger stations. And we're going to keep finding reasons to stay where we are. So with that, we're going to go into a psalm. We're just going to look at a few excerpts from it. It's Psalm 139. If you want to turn to it, you can. I'll have the parts of the passage on the screen. But I want to just give you a little background for it so you understand, especially if you don't even know what psalms are. Psalms is one section, a unique section of the scriptures that are really, it's almost like... Uh, Israelites' leaders writing their honest thoughts, their joys, and their sorrows directly to God. In fact, a third of them are actually called laments, meaning it's the people crying out going, where are you? This is horrible. Which, by the way, we don't even know how to do. We just think everything's supposed to be wonderful. Jesus rose, it's all good, but we don't realize there's pain and struggle. But the Psalms, and this particular one, is one of what's called a Davidic Psalm, which means David, who is a king, who is a very important figure in Israel's history, it's kind of an inward look at his struggles and his life. 
It's him saying to God, this is my mess, help me in this. And what I love about the Psalms are, the psalmist write, it's like when things are great, they're like, God, you're awesome. There's nobody like you. When things are bad, you're like, God, where are you? This sucks. Like, isn't it comforting to know the people of God over history were honest in their messes? Like, one of the first things I want to take off of us is, please don't think you have to have it all together and go, oh, I'm just supposed to say it's great. I'm supposed to stuff all this stuff. No, people are honest with God. So I want to begin there. Now, with Psalm 139, I told you this is one of the Davidic Psalms, and we're going to give a little bit of an overview as we get into it for where we're going in the passage. So I'm not going to read. There's 40-some verses, but... I want, to, I want you to see how it starts. And for those of you who've been around church, you're gonna hear a few familiar verses because we tend to pull one verse out and go, oh, I love this one, but we don't hear the whole journey of the psalm. So it's true of even how it begins. It begins, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. That's how the psalmist begins. You search me, you actually explore is what that means. You've run into and after me. And all that follows are these descriptors. You know when I sit and when I rise. You see me when I'm going out and when I'm lying down. You see me everywhere. You're familiar. You actually know, experience my ways. That's what familiar means. Not like it's a head knowledge, but you're actually present. You know how I live my life and what I do. Even before I say words, the psalmist says, you know them. And then he has this beautiful thing. Where can I go from your spirit? The heavens, you're there. The depths of the earth, the depths of the ocean, you're there. Everywhere I go, you are there. Now, depending on how you view God, that's a good thing or a bad thing, right? You do get that. I mean, I could read another way. Oh my goodness, anywhere I go, you're there. You know what I'm thinking. Oh, great. I'm gonna be basically beaten down for what a bad person I am. And God, you're there to catch me and tell me how horrible I am. And I wanna stop there just for a minute because that's not how God is. So one of the areas you're gonna have to overcome, even as we look at this, is what do I put on how God speaks to me and sees me versus what's true? And the psalmist has a very optimistic view. And by the way, David's done a lot of bad things and he's a mess. So this is not a guy who lives a wonderful life. His sin list is pretty bad. And yet he sees God as he is. Now he continues with more conversation about, listen, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Not meaning God literally did it, but that God functionally does it by the way he creates and what he does. And then he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. A verse many Christians cite. Hey, you need to know you're made in God's image. You're fearfully and wonderfully made, which is true. But there's much more about it than that. He goes on and says, even the days you've ordained for me, how precious, he says, are your thoughts for me. He's giving this beautiful perspective that God not only is everywhere, but knows intimately him. And by the way, that's true of every single one of us. And I don't think we believe it. We tend to think God is an exacting perfectionist that if he knows us, he only knows those who are doing well enough, who are achieving enough, and when he does know us, it's kind of to catch us and keep us moving forward because it's never good enough for him. And yet God who we follow, the God of the universe says, no, no, I made you. I see all of the stuff inside of you. I see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And guess what? I couldn't love you more. He's not saying just take a pass. He's saying in your brokenness, I'm still there and love you. In your brokenness, I love you so much. That's what we call the gospel. Jesus came in the flesh to live, to literally die, to pay for all this brokenness in us and to rise again and give us his very presence because God says, I see all this mess and I'm with you and for you and I love you. All of it. 
Come on. Man, if we believe that, imagine what would change to the anger and rage in our lives. Just that. Now, where David goes with this is basically it's a picture of, listen, you're with me and you're for me and you love me and all these things are great. And now he's going to turn a corner to the mess he's dealing with because there are lots of people against him. And by the way, he lived in an amazing time of anger and hatred. They plugged in all sorts of places for that. And so here's his response to that. Listen, if only you, God, if only you would slay the wicked, oh, get rid of them. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. They are so wrong. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those you hate, Lord? Do I not abhor those that are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Not exactly a sweet passage, is it? Now, by the way, if you've been around the church a while, you'll find that people love the Psalms when people are not good to them. This is not the only Psalm that says things like this. There's Psalms that say, oh God, that you would take this person and dash them against the rocks. God, that you would treat them as if they were never born in the name of Jesus for the love of God, amen. You do realize there's incredible harshness and hostility in the Psalms. There's an honest struggle. I don't want this anymore. They are bad and you are good. But here's the part I want you to see that is David's mess. He somehow believes that he's God's ambassador to bring hate and anger to those around him. In other words, he thinks he's carrying it for God because God hates and God's angry. Now I say that to you because let's be honest. In the day we're living in, we've decided we're God's protectors and ambassadors of hate and anger. We're going to show people just how wrong they are and slay the wicked because indeed that is what they are. And here's the sad part. We tend to look to Jesus when we want to use what we call, if you haven't been around the church, it's called righteous anger where we look and go, well, this anger is good. There's bad anger, but we actually have the good kind. That's what we say. Now, here's what's funny. In all of Jesus walking the earth, we have one story particularly. Now, he has a few others of quick things he says, but where he shows anger demonstratively. It's when he's coming into the temple, and he's coming into the temple. There are these tables there where they have to change money, and the people using them are using their wealth to oppress the poor, and they're making all these added fees, basically, to poor people so they can't get closer to the temple, and they can't get closer to God, and people are far from God. And he's so angry that he flips the tables and says, this is a den of robbery and it should be a house of prayer. That's righteous anger. But we ignore everything else Jesus says. And we say, oh, by the way, all my anger and hate, that's that little table turning. That's what I'm doing with my whole life. Do you understand that God did not make us to be ambassadors of anger? He made us to be agents of love. And that's a shift we are so busy showing people that we are gods and we are right and they are wrong that we see them as wicked that should be slayed and we are wonderfully made that should be loved. And maybe that's a big capital H. We take a smaller one and a smaller A for anger with the people around us because guess what? I'm right and you're wrong. I'm in the know and you're not. I'm better and you're lesser. So to varying degrees, we do the same thing. It's just a small A, anger, and a small H, hate. 
parents show their kids their disapproval and disdain because they don't approve of what they do and they treat them in a way that is unloving and shameful. It has nothing to do with whether they're in the right or not. It just has to do with their hatred and anger. Spouses do the same to one another. Friendships are broken over this. And again and again, we say they're capital W wicked or they're small W wicked, and I am God's agent of hate and anger to make it right. And we missed that Jesus called us to be an agent of love. Now what's crazy is David makes a turn here in the text, and this is where I wanted us to see. David turns from God just seeing him and knowing him and even seeing the wicked around him to a different view that makes no sense given the rest of the story. Right? He just finished. Like, these are the wicked. Take them out. And all of a sudden, something shifts for David, and he says this. Search me, God. God, would you search me and know my heart? Would you test me and know my anxious thoughts? Would you see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting? Do you realize he's moved from, God, you need to take out bad stuff because I'm good and they're bad to, uh-oh. What if I'm not all I thought I was? What if there's an internal journey in this and not an external journey? What if the journey that we're on right now of plugging into our anger stations everywhere we go is what's creating the problem, not everyone outside of us? And God's saying, guess what? I want you to look inside instead. I have a different journey for you. It's such a beautiful thing. David says, search me. It literally means, uh, God, would you explore? Would you go on a, basically a quest to see who I am? And in case you didn't remember, what was said all before was how God knows us. Hey, God knows us when we're coming, when we're going. He knows our intentions. He knows our dreams. He knows our brokenness. He knows all of it. It's, God, would you search me? You know me better than I know myself. You do realize God knows us better than we know ourselves. That means God knows your dreams and your wiring. He knows the things that matter to you. He crafted those and loves those. Oh, this matters. I love it. I love who you are. And in that way, God is encouraging and cheering us, but he also sees what those things can do to cause trouble. Oh, you're wired for justice? That's great. Man, if you're not merciful along the way, that can be really harsh. Oh, you're wired for mercy? That's great. Oh, if you don't see the need for justice, that... You can see God sees those good things, but it also means... God sees our brokenness. He sees our self-protective ways. He sees the way you and I do things to defend ourselves and to make sure we're right and we're okay and we're above others and we're safe. I'm gonna ask you to raise your hands and I'm gonna just telegraph this. You need to raise your hand. <laughs> okay. It's a question, but the answer is yes. If you have a blind spot and probably many blind spots, raise your hand. That's exactly right. Guess what? You and I do not see everything as it is. And hopefully we're in relationships close to us that they speak some truth to us because oftentimes we find ways not to hear the truth. But when we say, search me, God, we're saying, God, would you look into what I don't see? Would you actually look inside of me and help me to see how all this mess I'm in of conflict is not the wicked and the good and I'm the good and they're the wicked, but guess what, God, maybe I'm broken and I'm contributing with my own anger station to what's not right. And I love the second part of this because he says, test me. 
It's a beautiful word. The, the Hebrew has another word for testing that is used often. It's called nasah, and it means to elevate, that you test someone in order to elevate them to a new level. This word for testing, though, means uh, it's very particular, and it means how metal is forged in a fire to be refined. So here's the crazy part. Test me is like saying, God, put me under pressure and change me through it. Okay? Are you and I not under a lot of pressure right now? What do we always pray? Oh, God, would you relieve the pressure? I'm a great person when I'm not under pressure. I'd love to just be... There were a few times in my life where I didn't have a lot of pressure. I'm like, you know what? I'm actually a pretty good husband and father and even a good friend. I should just not be under pressure. Who would, I'm going to start a GoFund for who'd like to pay me so I can just not be under pressure ever. I'll be a good man. That is not how God changes us. What if instead of us saying, would you relieve the pressure, we said, oh God, would you take this pressure and would you test me? Would you let it refine who I am? What if the anger you and I have and the hate we're feeling and the conflict we're broken over is actually from us and not the people around us? What if the wicked aren't quite as wicked as we'd like to believe? What if we have brokenness that's messing up how we treat others? What if we're so busy plugging into anger stations to get refueled and basically rationalize that we're justified for what we're mad about. Don't we do that all the time? I have one friend who's a mentor that says, that's a funny thing about us, we always think we're right. (laughs) That's true, and I am. (laughs) Test me. God, would you look into this? God, would you test me in my closest relationships? When I'm struggling with something of someone else, before I go into decide to give them an earful of how they're wrong and I'm right, would you put me under the fire and pressure me that it might reveal something about me instead of about them? Oh God, before I go after my kids for what they haven't done or my parents for how they're not doing enough or my friends for the way they are or oh my goodness, generational differences, oh God, would you actually test me And let me start to see why this is percolating anger every time I have this interaction. What's going on in me that causes it? Some years ago, I remember realizing it was a horrible revelation, but beautiful, that my struggles were so much more about my frustration of the same problem I saw in others than they were about them. Like, oh no. God, could we just hide that revelation back somewhere? I don't really want to know that I had the same trouble. Can you imagine if you and I, before we posted our wonderful thing we're going to post, whether it's an article, a story, or some idea that we're going to basically take somebody out, oh, I didn't know if you realized it, but I'm chosen and you're evil, it's time to show you again, idiot. So we said, oh God, would you test me? Would you help me to look differently at this? Would you help me to change what I'm doing and not do it? Or I'm going to react to it? And by the way, testing literally means that we let God's presence start to speak to us and convict us and change us. And I want to give you at least one tool to help you with this because I realize that's a great thing to say. I'm going to pray and then I'm hoping God says something. I don't even know how to do this. So I, I want, I'm just going to give you one idea that I, I want to encourage all of you to try. So Matthew chapter 5 in the scriptures, it's a gospel account. There's a thing called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
It's basically Jesus teaching for three chapters. And in case you don't know, a chapter is not like 10 pages. A chapter is a page or two. So don't worry. And you're like, now I got to read a chapter. And you're like, oh, I got to read for 15 minutes. I can't believe it. But oh, I'm going to go on my phone for three hours. Yes, that's me being sarcastic and I'm not testing any of it. So uh, I would love for you just to read that one section of his teaching. Because of this, it will test you and it will search you. Because Jesus says things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. He goes on to talk about you and me being salt and light. He goes on to talk about some very significant offenses like murder and says, hey, if you just have hate in your heart, you're in trouble. And then it finishes with loving your enemies. I think God will stir your heart if you just go, oh, instead of getting angry and saying this or doing that, instead of posting this, instead of confronting that, what if you sat down and said, I'm not going to recharge on anger, I'm going to recharge on Jesus. I wonder what the Spirit of God would do if I read this instead of posted this or said that or just got mad and shut down. All I want to be is helpful to you. I get concerned because what we want to do, if you're like me, I want to look at the person I'm in conflict with and I love to pick apart what they've done wrong. And any of us can do that with each other. You do realize that. It's fascinating. I just want you to show you this. This is just Proverbs as an example, but it tells a different way to approach people. The purpose of, of a person, are, of their heart, are deep waters, but the one whose insight draws them out. In other words, every person you interact with has depth to them. We search them so we can basically run them out and take them down. Proverbs says, no, no, the way you search them is you search what's really in their heart, what motivates what matters, you draw that out and you begin to love and care and walk in life with them. By the way, you cannot draw out what's in someone else until the Lord helps you draw out what's in you. You know what our problem is? We're so busy drawing out others so we can take them down. We haven't let the Lord draw out of us so we can actually build them up. You think conflict might change if you and I said, search me and test me? And then we began to ask the Lord as he's revealing things to us, would you help me see them like you do? I'm telling you, it would change our relationships and it would change the world around us. I think it's a simple idea, but it's a dangerous prayer. Lord, search me and refine me. God, I want you to change who I am. And, and then we move on to, oh God, would you help me see others? Really see them like you do. Because guess what? All the things we read that the psalmist says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, you see my coming. That's what God says about every other person you interact with. He didn't look at them and go, wicked, wicked, good, 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 wicked, good, wicked, wicked. He went, mine, 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 mine. Oh, I so badly want them to know me. I wish you did too. I'm not looking for an ambassador of hate. I'm looking for agents of love. Man, it, it's uh, like, I wish I could compel you into it. Because I think we could change a lot around us if we'd say, God, would you, instead of making me angry, let me be angry and recharge on it, start searching me and testing me? And let me actually love the people I disagree with. Let me actually care for them. Let me actually be changed in the midst of it. Let me see the depth of who they are instead of the shallowness of my judgment of them. You know, I, uh, I'm so glad we talked about this and started the series but like I said, unless God moves, nothing's going to change. Unless we say, Holy Spirit, we can't do this. Because in case you don't know, even when God shows me things, it's not like I go, oh, awesome, I'll just fix that. 
I go, oh, crud, I'd want to keep doing that. Could you just put that somewhere else? I need you. And then let me think about the people that aren't followers of Jesus. I, I have a lot of friends that are not Christians, and uh, they're so disheartened by us. I don't mean us particularly as one church, but the church, that they see how hateful and unloving we are. And they go, that's who a Christian is? I mean, those are people that think they should be ambassadors of anger and hate, taking people out. We're the agents of love. We're the people that are looking in their own mess. And I just want to say, if you're searching today, that we don't want to be that. We're sorry. That's what you're seeing. And I want us to be people that people look at and go, oh my goodness, if that's what Jesus is like, I need that. Not I need somebody that's going to tell me I'm wicked and they're good and we're going to just draw our lines and be hateful along the way. So if you're in that journey, I want to say to you the best thing we offer is that we have a God who actually meets us in our messes, that he wants you to be one of the agents of love with us, discovering his love for you and the love he's called you to bring others. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to close out our time with communion as a way to saying, God, we need your very presence. But Lord, I'm asking that you'd meet us today. I confess there's not a thing I could say that would change anybody, but I am asking by the power of your spirit that you'd breathe life into us, and we will become people that say, search me, and test me. And Lord Jesus, may your spirit help us to understand who you are as we read the very words of you teaching. May your spirit convict us, soften us, challenge us. And Lord, I am praying for any who are not followers of you, that they would hear your very whisper of knowing they're fearfully and wonderfully made. They are seen by you and they're coming and going and all that they do in their brokenness and their sinfulness and in the wonders and joys of how you've made them. Lord, I'm praying they would want your forgiveness and they'd want life and so lead them in that way, whether today with a friend or this week, remind and renew them into it. And God, we are praying that you would help us to be people of love, people unplugged from the changing stations, the charging stations of anger and plugged into the very love of your spirit. We pray this in your name, amen.